My name is Robert Schreiner, and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds, and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with a singer, songwriter, and Marine. We get to talk with Mike Corrado. We'll talk to him about how we get a start in songwriting, what it's like to balance a music career with being a Marine, and we'll take a deep dive into his partnership with A Hero. Now, Mike has seen a lot, and I can't wait to talk to him about his journey. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Mike, sir, how are you? I am well, and I must first say that that intro music is funky. <laughs> that's, that's a jam right there. That's good. That's what happens when you work in the music business, sir. There you, you go. spend more time worrying about the things that don't matter as much. Oh, that's a nice way to bring it in. <laughs> well, let's just start. Um, which came first, the Marine or singing songwriting? Uh, wow. I think um, I think the Marine did. Uh, the the singer-songwriter kind of came a little later. I, you know, I did drums from early on, you know, second grade through high school, wound up looking at two schools. One was East Carolina for the school of music that's in Greenville, North Carolina. And the other one was the Citadel, which is in Charleston, which is absolutely beautiful place. I knew that if I went to Greenville uh, and I went to ECU that I would never finish college. (laughs) So I wound up going to the Citadel barracks. Life is not conducive to the drums. So therefore bought a guitar, learned how to play uh, you know, at the time you had folks like Edward McCain, Hootie the Blowfish, uh, you know, driving and crying. And that's kind of when I switched from from drums to singer songwriter. So I guess they kind of came about the same time. But <laughs> either way, it, it's it's been so intertwined that uh, it's it's kind of all it's just my story. So how old were you at the time? Oh, uh, when I. When I picked up guitar, I was probably 1920 and uh, graduated when I was 22. I started playing show, writing songs, playing out, you know, covers, a couple originals, probably when I was 24 consistently. So 1994. It's not bad. What was life like in the Citadel? It was restrictive, but in a good way. It was it was good in the fact that we had this thing every night called ESP, which is evening study period. And they pretty much uh, have you in the rooms and you get checked on, making sure you're studying, you're not goofing around. And I needed that. I think I needed a little bit of that uh, that that regimen to kind of get me on the right track. I had a pretty big, pretty big temper slash ego slash all of that, you know, coming out of high school, I know it all. And then the Citadel was a nice humbling experience to kind of let me know that I didn't and that there were plenty of things to learn. 
it was good for me all around. Plus, I got to be in Charleston, which is just absolutely beautiful. It was beautiful. So the the scene at the time you mentioned Hootie and the Blowfish. Are those some of your influences, or who are your influences? I think my two biggest influences, kind of vocally would be Edwin McCain because he used to play all the bars down there. He's since become a great friend of mine, great mentor. I kind of talk to him every couple of weeks or so. He sang on a couple of my songs, a couple of the albums. Uh, I recorded a couple albums at his studio in Greenville, South Carolina. So he was a huge influence. And I, and I think he was probably the biggest influence on me to become a singer songwriter because, you know, I remember going to a little bar called Cumberland's and they always had live music. They had great wings too, but I would see him there quite a bit and to watch the passion and the delivery and the power. And he's got such an amazing voice that really stirred me to want to do something like that. Hootie and the Blowfish, they were playing all over the place. They were doing like a lot of covers. They had a few originals and things like that, but they were mostly just a cover party band. Dylan Fence was down there, like I said, driving and crying. It was a great scene in the Southeast. And then, you know, once Hootie got signed and then Edwin followed and then Craven Mellon and then, you know, that whole area seemed to just be on fire. So at what point is it that you started writing songs? It happened shortly after I was at the basic school. Uh, We were going through training, and it was summer of 93. And we were on a live fire range, and one of the lieutenants uh, right in front of me, because we were mirroring each other, and I was next to go, so I was right behind him. And somebody to his left, to my left as well, happened to flag the line with their rifle. Um, At the time, we were shooting all tracers. And uh, he happened to flag the line. He broke every weapon safety rule, which if he would have followed just one, my buddy Eric would still be alive. But he flagged the line, and he wound up taking a round uh, through the back and in the chest, and he was just killed instantly. So... That was kind of a pivotal moment. Number one, it was a welcome to adulthood. It was a welcome to the Marine Corps or the service in that this is not a game. And, you know, I wrote a song about him kind of as a way to to deal with it, to manage it. You know, I didn't know all the buzzwords back then. I just knew that we are now one less in our platoon and we were just training. You know, we weren't even doing anything, any kind of combat or operational related. But that's when I really started kind of digging into the words, the structure as a way for not only myself, but also the friends around me to heal. It's got to be tough. It was, it was tough. And then we had a memorial service for him. His name was uh, Second Lieutenant Eric Berteau. And uh, he went to Carnegie Mellon, I think, up around your neck of the woods, I think. But when his mom came to to the memorial that we had in Quantico, that was that was pretty brutal. But, you know, it's uh, uh, it's just one of those things. And it was musically uh, it got me writing. It, it got me focused 
but also professionally as a Marine, uh, you know, and then later becoming an infantry officer and running, I, I can't even tell you how many ranges, live fire ranges with all kinds of weapons and weapon systems. I just, I think about that uh, moment all the time. I use it as a, a learning tool when I give safety briefs and uh, when we run the ranges and just let them know, hey, you know, these, these weapon safety rules are there for a reason. If you follow just one, there's four, and then you can add another one which is know your target and what lies beyond. And if you call that five, if you follow just one of them, any one of them, you're not going to have an issue. But in this case, you know, somebody broke all of them and uh, it ended in tragedy. I'm a firearms instructor myself and I've never had anything like that happen. Thank God. But I don't know how I would handle it. I don't even want to imagine it. So your songwriting process can you kind of describe how you go about writing songs? Always writing down little little tidbits and books and that kind of thing. And I still do that, but now I kind of put it in my notes in the, in the old iPhone and you hear a line or you think of a line or whatever, and you just kind of jot that down and come back to it. So one of the things for me, and I think it's kind of being deep rooted in being a drummer and, and rhythm is if I hear a groove or if I hear a beat or I I have a, uh, a tempo or a feel that I want to kind of write something in. I can either create the beat, play the beat, whatever, and then play along to it. So for the most part, I think it comes with playing some chords. And then once that rhythm kind of gets established, then from there you start fitting in the words and you go back to your your books and your phones and that kind of thing. You start plugging in words and, and kind of going from there. So you go from playing drums and you go to the military, you start playing guitar and you start this process of writing songs. The longer you spend in the military, does that now start affecting how your songs get influenced? Uh, it does. It does. So I was on active duty for about five years and then I got out and I pursued music full time. The whole 15 passenger van, seven dudes in the van, pulling the trailer with the big PA and the lights and the merch and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we were doing 200, 250 shows a year, headlining, playing the the chicken wing tours throughout the Southeast. (laughs) And, and then, you know, we would, open for lots of people. Then 9-11 hit and got a call and said, Hey, we need you to come back. And I said, I said, you know, where are we going and what's the gear list? So, you know, the, the guys in the band, most of them still uh, Marines that we all got out at the same time. I was an officer, an infantry officer. They were in the second Marine division band. So really talented players. And we were traveling all over the, east coast and then when that happened it was it was game on and they knew that that i had to go do this and so while i did that some of them went back to school some of them got jobs moved away that kind of thing so yeah i've had this uh this thing with timing throughout my entire career you know it is what it is i had a an album that we had worked on for about a year uh, when we weren't playing and when we can scrounge up enough money to get in the studio. Cause you know, you didn't have all the, the home studios and workstations that you do now, but 
and that album finally got mixed and mastered and it came out on September 12th of 2001. And the, the events of the day prior, obviously put the kibosh on that tour. And that was kind of the, that was, that was a big change. And then working, you know, and now training for a deployment and then going on deployment, uh, you know, music took on many roles beyond just entertainment. There's some ways that we used it to heal when we were over in Fallujah, which was fantastic. But, you know, as you start to you're constantly around Marines and, and you're constantly which means you're constantly around other men and women and everybody goes through life a little differently. Some have families, some can endure the hardships of deployments. Some don't, some handle stress in different ways, but you get to see people at their best and see people at their worst. And that's both from a personal side and a, and a military side, but that stuff kind of creeps in to your songwriting. At least it did for me. You know, I wrote some songs that, yeah, you know, I wrote some songs that helped that helped me heal from things that helped me talk about things that people don't usually talk about. It was a, uh, it was a good, good tool for me to be able to communicate and internalize some feelings. I was living in Nashville and we were on the road and going up to, I think it was either Massachusetts or New Hampshire to perform on either September 11th or 12th. And I was actually on the George Washington bridge just about an hour or two right before it all happened. Yeah. So I know you mentioned also the mentorship you had from Edwin McCain. When you were traveling around and playing all these gigs and you had a chance to open up for some amazing artists, did you learn anything from these people? Or was there anything like road tricks that you learned or picked up? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think with us, when we were all touring as a band, we had a pretty – pretty solid work ethic because we were all very mission focused, mission oriented. We knew the end state. We knew the direction we wanted to go. As far as seeing people live, meeting them, learning how to, how to work a crowd, how to be a professional. We've opened up for some, some big bands that were just just jerks. I mean, super unprofessional. You know, and I, I remember one time, about fifteen thousand folks, and you know, we, their crew was just so unprofessional. And I'm just like, man. I mean, did did these guys forget what it was like? Probably five years prior to when they were in a van and running around, and right. So. I don't know. It, you know, part of that, uh, when you talk about the, you know, the Edwin McCain's and people like that is they are genuine people. They will, they'll shoot you straight. They will help you out. They'll tell you when, you know, they'll give you advice and critiques on things that you could, you could improve on. So Definitely learned a lot uh, from him, from other bands. Got to you know see how they how they played, how they were professional during sound check, how they treated the catering folks or the you know, the green room staff or 
that kind of thing. So, you know, you take that stuff away and it, it can only make you, can only make you better if you choose to apply it. Well, I spent 30 years in the industry and 20, which have been in Nashville and I work on the other side of the glass producing and engineering projects. And I've had a chance to work with some of the most amazing artists. And I would say 95% of them are just great, but mm. you do run across one or two that I like to chalk it up to maybe they're having a stressful day or something, but occasionally you get some people that just aren't as nice as others. That's okay. That happens. Yeah. So what's your most memorable moment from the road? One kind of funny, humbling moment. We were running around as the Mike Corrado band. We were starting to become a big fish in a small pond. And there's a club in uh, Greenville, North Carolina called The Attic. And it's it's kind of one of those bucket list rite of passage places. And everybody's played there, uh, you know, Black Crows, Dave Matthews, Hooting the Blowfish, all that kind of stuff. And we had just gotten to the point where we sold it out. And I was feeling pretty good about it. And then the next night, we rolled up to Norfolk. And we played a beautiful venue up there called the Norba. And wound up opening up for John Mayer. And I had not heard of him. His uh, Room for Squares album hadn't come out yet. It was about to. But obviously... You know, word was traveling fast. And again, you know, this was 2000, 2000 or 2001, something like that. And still kind of pre, pre social media and stuff like that. But we were backstage and, and, and again, I, I don't, you know, I didn't know him, didn't know of his music. I, all I know is this place was like sold out 1500 seater and we're backstage. And then I'm like, he's like, yeah, you know, how how's it been? Where have you been playing? I was like, well, you know, last night we sold out the attic and, uh, and I was, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself. And I was like, how about you? Where where were you guys last night? He's like Conan. Like, okay. (laughs) All right. I'm sorry. And I I tell, I tell, uh, you know, younger musicians or bands and I was just like, you know, you just, you're going to have, you know, high highs. And then, you know, you're going to have those opening, you know, opening for, you know, a John Mayer to a sold out show. And then the next night you're going to be playing at the, the local wing restaurant again for $400 and some sandwiches, you know? So it's, uh, you know, being a musician and being on the road, it, you know, it's tough for the ego. That's for sure. So once you kind of get that in check and realize that it, it, it ebbs and flows, then that's fine. It's gotta be tough. You know, you, you're feeling really good about it. You know, you know. sell out a show and then the next night you meet up with John Mayer. Yeah, I mean, you know, and the capacity is like 600, but, you know, it, it's it's still not many, you know, not every, no, I won't say not many, but not everybody did it. And 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 we had just kind of, and we had some local radio play and we were starting to, you know, we, were, we had a lot of requests and stuff going and we were starting to talk to the labels and that kind of thing. And they were actually calling us and then it was, you have funny little things like that. And then, you know, the, uh, again, the timing of nine 11 just kind of just wasn't, it wasn't meant to be. No, that's understandable. Yeah. I mean, you put out some, some good work. You put out some nice videos. Can you tell me about stand? So before stand, there was a song called on my watch tonight. And I released that, in like March of 05 and March 05 to March 06 is when I was 
in Fallujah because we deployed. We were there for a year. And while I was gone, the local radio station started playing it. And of course, a radio station in Eastern North Carolina, shout out to Greg Brady for, for playing that. But it was a huge radio station in that area and it covered multiple Marine bases. So it was a, you know, top 40 type radio and it was what everybody listened to. So all the military families, all the Marine families, all the Marines, all the, and it just had to be right time, right place. And then it started doing really well. And then the, the DJ was trying to get it to Seacrest and to Oprah and all this stuff. And it started making all this noise, but that's one of the songs that Edwin had sang on. And then I was deployed when it came out, you know, that kind of ran its course. And then when I got home and had a chance to, to decompress a little bit, I wanted to write a song that encompassed everything from the military. So, you know, that song, it talks about the young kid that's signing up or the mother that, that signed his papers or her papers when they're 17. Cause you can sign up when you're 18, but if you have your parents' permission, you can sign up when you're 17. So it's about those who are going to serve, those who do serve, those who have served, those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. And then the families that stay, it's just kind of, it just kind of encompasses everybody. And it's, it's why we do the things we do. And it's, it's so that people can, live their lives and, you know, do what they want with it. I recorded that EP at Edwin's studio in Greenville. What was that like? It was fantastic. Uh, we had a great producer, Noel Golden, and he pulled in the the band. I brought in a couple players. I brought in my guitar player and I brought in a Hammond player. We had one of the guys from at the time was touring with uh, Marshall Tucker. He was the, the guitar player. So he kind of was a multi-instrumentalist, but so we recorded that. And then when I got back, I was stationed in Hawaii at the time. So I flew from Hawaii to Greenville, South Carolina to go record this. <laughs> and then when I got back and it got mixed, then we wound up shooting the video for it. And it's one of my favorite videos because I happen to know the operations officer for uh, Marine Corps air station, Connie Oe Bay. And I said, Hey, you know, we're looking to shoot some, you know, some scenes, we'll put you in one of the hangars. And, and I was like, great. You know, and then we talked to, uh, we got, we had to get permission from the Marine Corps. They have a television and film office located in LA and we got permission to do that with them. We used, we used a couple Marines in uniform. There was a, there's a Marine in the video and his name was Jim Ward, and he has since passed. But he was uh, a Marine who fought at the Chosen Reservoir in Korea. And we used some of his memorabilia. So he kind of played the past Marine. And then we had another who played the present Marine. I just kind of played the singer-songwriter guy. And then we had some people that played family members. And then I, my Marines that I deployed with, we got to use um, some of their photos and that also some, some other photos of, you know, some deployment stuff and some video. And it was just, you know, it's really personal to me and it, people seem to like it. It wound up getting on CMT and GAC and a couple of those. 
it was just uh it was fun yeah edwin did the background vocals for that one too as a matter of fact nice yeah when you went in the studio with the producer was this the first time you met him I think I had met him a few times because he worked with Edwin and he worked with Matchbox 20. And I had met him a few times prior to, which is kind of what led to that conversation. So it was the first time we worked together, but it wasn't the first time we met. What was his process like? Uh, Super laid back. I mean, just really puts you at ease, low stress, you know, just was like, all right, let's try this. Let's try this. Hey, what do you think about this? And then, you know, that's when, um, you know, I really got to learn the, the process was just kind of by watching him. And so he did that EP and then he did a song back in the same studio called still in the fight. We did that a year later. That one has uh, one of the Marines that I serve with he was in an Amtrak, which is an armored personnel carrier, amphibious armored personnel carrier. He hit a triple stack IED. He wound up getting severely burned, was down in the burn center for a couple of years. His name was Corporal Aaron Minkin. He's a combat camera photo- uh, photographer. He's the one that took a picture of me in front of the Camp Fallujah sign with the guitar. That picture's been in Rolling Stone. It's been a couple other pictures, but it was important for me to have him in that, especially when it was a song about wounded warriors. And then we also had uh, master Sergeant William Spanky Gibson. He was one of the first Marines to actually redeploy to a combat zone with a prosthetic leg. And then we also had a young Marine who was about six months post blast at the time named Kyle Carpenter, who a couple of years after that, I was fortunate enough to go to the white house and watch him receive his medal of honor. So if you want to see that studio, you can check out that video. It's called Still in the Fight. And that one, that was super special to me. It's so hard to think that you're going through this stuff when you're recording music. But when you're in the studio and you're working with the producer, are you playing everything as a live band or are you actually overdubbing a lot of the process? So we tracked it live, really to get the drums. Uh, We wound up getting uh, the drums, most of the bass, most of the guitars. The vocals were scratched at that point. And then we just kind of went back and and built it from there. This whole process for you has to be tough. I mean, what kind of challenges are you facing? Um, Well, for that one, it was jet lag because I flew in from Hawaii to do that again. Well, speaking of that, I mean, the balance between being an artist and being in the military, that's got to be a challenge within itself. Um, it was, you know, and I'm retired now for all those. I know you said Marine, but I know there's going to be people watching that go, he didn't shave. What's going on? It's like, I'm about three weeks into my, my freedom beard. So we'll see if, <laughs> we'll see if it works or not. But, um, you know, juggling the Marine Corps and family and music life uh, is it's not easy, but you figure out how to do it. It really helped with, you know, that I started doing some higher profile shows in the Marine Corps kind of they knew who I was and what I did, which was nice. And that's 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 one of the you know the great factors of being in a relatively small organization is people get to know you. So like when I was in Hawaii, I wound up 
being able to open up for Bon Jovi on the kickoff to their The Circle World Tour. They did two nights in Blaisdell Arena down there. And then uh, before I left Hawaii, I opened up for the Black Eyed Peas over at Kaneohe Marine Corps Base, which was uh, about 15,000 folks out there. It was a lot of fun. That seems like a different genre to open up for. Yeah, it was. And when they announced it, I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and I, one of the funny stories about the Black Eyed Peas show is that, you know, and, and I've got some video footage of it. You know, you can see it. You see the crowd and everybody's just amped up. All of Oahu and Honolulu is just a buzz because you have a big band like that coming in. So it's a huge, huge show for the island. And, you know, luckily the base knew who I was and, you know, what I did. And and they put me on the bill, which was cool. But I remember we played the show and we were, I mean, just soaking wet, just from sweat. And it was hot. We struck our stuff and we got it all out of the way just as fast as we could. And we run to the back of the the meet and greet line for, you know, just to go take a picture with the, the peas and, you know, just to say we did and we, you know, that we opened for them and that kind of stuff. And we get there and this big house size man <laughs> was just like lines closed. And we were like, we had just gotten there for the back, you know, that, I mean, after the last person went through, we we'd run up, we're like, we're here. Okay. Can we just get a picture? And then it's like, no, we're like, oh. you know, and the, the same thing with, uh, with uh, the Bon Jovi show is, uh, you know, we go and we're, we're watching them rehearse and watching, uh, you know, John Bon Jovi kind of rehearse the band, making sure all the cues are right, this and that. And then we go up there, just crushed it for 30 minutes. And then they get up there and they just, they do their thing. And I remember being side stage during their encore, which is Wanted Dead or Alive, which is one of my favorite songs. And John kind of looks over there to Monitor World, and I'm standing there, and I'm like, yeah, you're killing it. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, we wanted to get a picture with them, but it, it was like, nope, none shall pass. You know, and, and I, think, I, I think it's because at the time, you know, that was when Richie Sambora was starting to kind of uh, – fade out of the band and i i think they they probably just circled the wagons to keep they don't know who we are they don't know that we're a bunch of marines or yeah, they just right. they you know they want to keep everybody safe and that kind of thing so all right whatever still a, a great moment right yeah oh yeah so i see that you play taylor guitars is that your primary guitar it is i love those people i i got back from iraq I flew out to Burbank and we went to center staging and we did this thing for rehearsals.com. And it was this website and this program where they put you in this giant sound stage. They provide all the backline and it was all these robotic cameras were in there. It was just the band and the monitor man. And we went in there and we're just playing. And the whole premise of the show was to show what it looks like when bands rehearse. So they had like Earth, Wind and Fire. They had Tom Petty. They had a bunch of huge bands, but we we got invited as like an emerging artist kind of thing. So while I was there, I know that the Taylor had put out the T5 and I just thought it you know was a 
cool looking guitar. And I asked if they had one and they did. I played that. One of the singers was like, Oh, you know, I'm sponsored by Taylor and I'll put you in touch with the folks. And then they did. I got my first Taylor in 2006. That's the T5 right there. That's the one that they, they built that for me. And, you know, a couple years down the road, I just kind of kept them informed on things I was doing and, you know, the projects where we were working with wounded warriors and doing that kind of, you know, things with military functions and stuff. And they, they built me a couple guitars. They gifted me a couple guitars. Um, they put me in their national ad campaign called step forward. Music is waiting. That's cool. What was that like? It was, it was cool. You know, I did an interview and it was, it's pretty, it's kind of cool seeing, you know, as you're flipping through Rolling Stone or American songwriter or guitar player magazine and seeing your, your picture and your story in there, that's kind of neat. But that was a lot of the, um, for all the work I was doing with veterans and wounded warriors and PTSD and, you know, raising awareness and stuff like that. Fast forward a couple of years, I was actually, I was the executive officer for the Marine Corps Wounded Warrior Regiment. And we took care of the, the Marines uh, and sailors serving with Marine units, all the guys and girls that got injured. And during this time, it was kind of the height of the kinetic injuries and the, the amputations and the IED blast injuries coming out of Afghanistan. We have a Wounded Warrior Battalion, the Marine Corps does, out in Camp Pendleton, which is not far from El Cajon, California. El Cajon is where the Taylor factory is. So I called up Jim Curlin out there, and uh, and I just said, hey, I would like to bring some Wounded Warriors by and let them see the factory. And it's a different side of music. It's, you know, watching people make guitars and craft and work with their hands. And, it's impressive. You know, Oh, it's incredible. And they, they said, absolutely. They gave us our a private tour uh, and they modified the tour because we did have some Marines that were um, in wheelchairs and they weren't able to go on like the second uh, floor. So they, they just did a fantastic job, really took care of everybody. And I, I just can't say enough about them, uh, you know, Bob Taylor and the whole crew, just a great company. They're smart about the way they do things. They really take care of people. They're all about sustainability. I mean, they 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 really just they just knock it out of the park in absolutely everything they do. And uh, you know, we're just so happy with our Grunt Tunes and A Hero Records program to be able to work with them on that as well. I work in the studios a lot. People they either come in with Taylor or Martin. And I always prefer when Taylor comes in because it just has a shimmer and a shine to it that seems to mm. to cut through and just kind of sparkle and dance over the rest of the music. It's it's to me it's a really nice guitar. I love it. Oh, you yeah. mentioned grunt, so why don't you just go ahead and tell us what's coming up next for you? So, as an infantry officer, you know, uh, or an infantry uh, marine, same thing for soldiers, but you know, the infantry folks are referred to as grunts. So a couple of years ago, I started my own Grunt Tunes company. So all my music stuff works through that. I originally started a recording studio and a little, a little label imprint. And I was, I had put my own stuff out on that, but I also was producing other 
military artists or military related, something with a military tie. So I had a couple of veterans I worked with. I had a active duty Marine JP guns that I worked with Ryan Rubick, who at the time was a spouse of a Marine. So if it, if it had a tie like that to it, I tried to to help out as much as possible. So we started this little label with Grunt Tunes and we started putting, you know, some of their stuff out. Fast forward several years and I was contacted by this organization called A Hero, which is American Heroes Enjoying Recreation Outdoors. It's a 501-3C nonprofit. They do a lot of things for veterans and first responders, all kind of different programs to help them manage uh, stress, depression, PTSD, anything, any kind of program that will keep somebody from wanting to kill themselves or go down a destructive path. One of those programs turned into music for a hero. So we would go to a couple of different functions. We would perform. It was, we did kind of like the uh, uh, songwriter round and people would tell their stories. They'd play their songs. I would play my military kind of theme songs. But also during the day, we would sit down with a veteran and we would learn about their story and we would write a song. Much like the way uh, there's an operation song headed up by Bob Reagan in Nashville. Great program. We kind of took a page from their book. Then we sat down and we wrote songs about the stories of some of these veterans. One of those veterans, his name is Mike Miller, and we just released his song. And it was myself and then Jeff Sylvie, who uh, at the time was writing for George Strait's publishing company and two other writers, Rusty Tabor and Kevin Adair. And we wrote the song about Mike Miller, who's got several combat deployments. He's got a couple Purple Hearts. He was in for about five years and then he got out and then he was working construction. One day he was on a scaffolding about 20, 20 feet up in the air, fell off the scaffolding somehow, landed on the ground, broke his back. Well, when they did the x-rays and the CT scans and all that kind of stuff, they said, hey, what's with this mass in your head? Come to find out he had a brain tumor, which was cancerous. And then they said, you have stage four brain cancer. So we had gone to a, an event, an A Hero event down in Pensacola. And the Miller family, Mike and his wife, Summer, and then their three kids came down. And we just talked to them. You know, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was tough knowing that he's not going to be here long. And we wanted to capture his story. We wanted to, to let the family have just one of many things to remember him by. And we would ask him, yeah, what, what are the things that's, that you're most proud of? What's your legacy? And he's like, well, you know, that I was a good dad and I was a good coach. And, you know, I coached my, my kids and that kind of thing. So we worked all that into the song. The song was released. We released it on A Hero Records. The song was released on March 31st just a couple weeks ago. And two days prior to that, Mike had gone into hospice care. And then two days after that, he had passed. So there's a video out there. And if you go to YouTube and look up a hero records, you'll see my legacy, the Mike Miller tribute. So we go and we do things like that, but we also have some artists 
that we have signed and, and all of our artists on a hero records are military veteran and first responders. So we have uh, one artist that we signed and he, he kind of is a Americana in, in the, in the flavor of like a Sturgill Simpson, Tyler Childers kind of vibe. It's just, he's got this really cool vibe. And then we also have a band that we just signed called the resilient. And these guys I had heard of when they were at Walter Reed because it's five members and three of them are wounded warriors. The singer, Tim Donnelly is a bilateral amputee. And I met him at Walter Reed when I was working with the wounded warrior regiment. And then the drummer, believe it or not, is a triple amputee and he's missing both legs and his right arm, but he plays the drums. And he does it well. He has a uh, special prosthetic that goes on his right arm. And the end of that prosthetic holds a drumstick. He basically moves his arm like that to play hi-hat, toms, snare, ride. And then for his pedals, access pedals, they make drum pedals for kick drum, um, hi-hats. But they modified pedals and they put a rod on it. That rod is attached to these paddles, which he plays with his what he has left of his, his upper leg and his, he's missing his legs from about the middle of the, the thigh. So, I mean, just absolutely incredible. And then the singer, I'm sorry, uh, one of the guitar players, Nathan Kalwicki, he is army and he is a single leg amputee. So you talk about a group of folks that are out there living their, their band name and their ethos called the resilient because they are. They are incredible. And uh, as soon as Lee, who's the president of A Hero USA, Lee Stuckey, he's a retired Marine, wounded warrior himself, and he came up with all these programs. And then as soon as he asked me to head up a label, I said, "All right, I know, I know exactly who my first band is going to be." And we went to the Resilient based on the fact that, you know, I knew them when they were serving and then now to be able to work with them in the studio is going to be awesome. So, but they were at Walter Reed and there was a music program there called Music Corps. And there's a guy named Arthur Bloom and Greg Loman were, were pivotal in starting this program and it was music therapy. So not only did it help for, PTSD, depression, things like that, but it helped with the cognitive aspect of getting brain functions to 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 refire and it helped with the the cognitive and the the physical aspect of it. So it was part of what they did during their recovery. Well, Walter Reed had no shortage of celebrities that would go through there. So Roger Waters from Pink Floyd had heard about this program. He saw them play. He was just like, yes, absolutely. So he took some of these guys they went up to Carnegie hall and they played, they went up to Madison square garden and they played, they've played the resilient has performed with Tom Morello from rage against the machine, Cheryl Crow, yo-yo ma, all these folks. But now it's time for them to do their thing. They're going to come here to our recording studio here in Shelbyville we're about an hour south of Nashville and we're going to record their debut album. 
And then there's also been a film crew following these guys around for the past three years. Talking to the documentary folks, they said, you know, we're, we've got all kinds of great footage. We just want to kind of have a culminating event. Well, that culminating event is going to be them in the studio recording, and then they're going to work the documentary side of it, and we're going to work the music side of it. And then hopefully these guys will be a, a household name because their story is absolutely extraordinary. And their music, when you hear it, they're, they're going to blow your mind. So you say you're going to bring them to Shelbyville. So what studio are you going to be recording in Shelbyville? So that's why, uh, well, that's why I'm dressed the way I am. Cause I, we closed on this property on the 20th of March and it's about five and a half acres and it's surrounded by woods. I mean, we are out, there's, there's nobody around. It is so peaceful. It's amazing. Minus Turkey and deer and everything, you know, although the critters run around, but we are building the, the grunt tunes and a hero records studio. It's going to be three entities. Number one, we're going to have the recording studio, which we are. We just got done framing. We're getting ready to start building that out. So we'll be ready to record in July. Then we also have the writer's retreat, which will house up to eight warriors. Or in the case of the resilient, we'll bring them in. Plus, they have a couple caregivers that travel with, with them full time. And then you know we're in the process of making the, the bathroom and ADA compliant we are configuring the studio to be ada compliant as well to make sure that we can take care of all the warriors that come through here so you're going to have the writer's retreat where they can come and relax it's basically like an airbnb it's going to have the kitchen the writer's area a lounge it's got three bedrooms a bunk room a one and a half baths place to do laundry stuff like that and then we have the studio and then we have what's going to be a venue and uh, we'll be able to do shows for between one and 300 folks. And there'll be intimate shows, more on the acoustic side, storytelling side. But where the stage is and just the, the layout happens to be, as you're looking at where the stage is going to be, you're looking due west. So we're going to do some sunset concert series. And then behind the stage, we have, uh, we're in the process of building a really nice fire pit area so that we can have those kneecap to kneecap chats. A lot of healing happens with music and it happens around a bonfire. So we plan to record the resilient here and other folks, but it's also going to be open to people who want to come and use it, whether that's, you know, music ministry teams or other bands or, you know, so, but we're starting the the primary focus is uh, to make sure that we're we're taking care of our a hero artists. Just putting an album or a project together is expensive, and then building a property is expensive, and building a recording studio is expensive. I mean, you're dealing with all of these things that are not just expensive. I mean, they're super expensive. So, how are you doing that? Do you have funding, or is this something you're doing all on your own? So for the most part, um, I'm doing it um, on my own. I've got the help of a couple really good folks. We are getting ready to go out and 
and seek donations for the resilient. I need to update the link on my site, but if you go to a hero USA.org, that's the parent 5013C. And if you click donate, it will say donate to the general account, which goes towards all kinds of activities, be it hunting, fishing, outdoors, that kind of thing. And then under that, it says, or donate to a hero records that all goes into funding for us to work with our artists, be able to help with their transportation, be able to help with the recording costs, the mixing, the mastering, the publicity, all the stuff that goes with it. And then we'll also be working with, if people want to donate specifically for the resilient, they go to the uh, the donate button, they hit a hero records. And then in the text, they just type in the resilient and then that money gets earmarked specifically for them. That is again, for the recording of the recording process. If we go over our amount, we're going to use it for logistics and additional publicity and marketing for those guys. Cause they do have some, some special travel needs different than a normal band that just, climbs in a van and hits the road. Yeah, no, I can imagine that. Well, I will definitely help out in any way I can. If you need any mixing services or anything like that, please let me know and I'll be happy to donate my time. Wonderful. Thank you. We do this thing where we, we honor the unsung hero. So what we do is we try to shine a little light on people who work behind the scenes, those that don't normally sit up front and get recognition. Do you have anybody that you'd like to recognize? Yeah. So my business partner, his name is John Lasseter. He's also producing and mixing some of these projects. Uh, he'll be moving down here next year, but he's got a place up in Maryland, literally about five miles south of the Paul Reed Smith factory. He's not a military guy, but he gets it. He gets the cause and he is, He's not one of the guys that you're going to see front and center all the time. Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Mike truly does have an amazing story. So please join me in giving a big thanks to Mike for joining us this week and sharing his story with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do just that and find the links to everything mentioned in this episode over at jfranzi.com slash episode 10. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives. Your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.